namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhassa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. <clears throat> so, uh, I find my back aches constantly, and is this something to stretch or that it will release naturally over time? Um, there are certain parts of the body that hold our stress, our emotions. Uh, we all know that these days. And really, if, if your posture is good, and you can always check it out with your yoga teacher, uh, then I would probably err on the side of thinking that it was some emotional problem stuck in the back. And that if you sit there with it patiently, it will work its way out. But you have to be fairly clear that it isn't actually something physical, you know, especially if you've got a spinal injury of some sort, um, a slip disc or something. If it becomes unbearable, if you just can't stay with it equanimously, keep investigating it, then yes, move, stretch. See? You're not trying to defeat pain. That's another dead loser. Yeah? When you sit with your back straight, you need to tense your stomach muscles to some degree in order to keep your back upright. How does this work when you're trying to feel the stomach rise and fall as you breathe? It's not possible if the stomach is clenched. Mine isn't. Maybe I'm structured differently. <laughs> I think you'll find that if you do lift up through the back, the stomach should relax. Because it's the diaphragm that's moving, isn't it? It's the diaphragm, isn't it, going up and down. And what you're feeling is pushing it against the stomach wall or whatever. So if you're completely relaxed, you should feel it. Yeah? If you can't feel the stomach rising and falling, but you do want to practice centering there, because there is a, a small advantage in observing the breath at the, at the um, abdomen, um, that it keeps you grounded in the body. When you watch the breath at the nostrils, you tend to lose the body a bit. So staying in the body at the abdomen really sort of connects you with the body. It's a small advantage from a vipassana point of view. And it's, um, it should be slightly more gross than watching it at the nostrils, actually. So if you're having problems feeling it, uh, you can put your hand just on your stomach and then you connect with it, you see. But just check if you've got, if you can't feel it at all, that you're not tensing muscles that don't need to be tensed. Yeah? 
should be your back muscles, really. The stomach should, should be quite relaxed. Yeah? <laughs> Don't all shout in agreement. At least that's, that's what I feel, anyway. So it might just be a bad habit. A lot of our tension around the abdomen, and what happens is that people then have shallow breaths. They breathe into their chest. Yeah? And that's, that's a sort of um, hyperventilation. You find that there's no break after the out-breath. Often a sign of anxiety there. So it's something to investigate, you see, to see if you can relax the stomach. If that doesn't work, um, the Mahasi actually began with five touch points, four or five touch points. So you go to your knee, you feel it, touching. When you've really grasped that feeling, you move to the next knee, touching. And your hands, touching. That's a very good thing to do if your mind's very restless. Because the energy then goes into the actual process of observing rather than trying to keep the attention absolutely still. I'll talk a bit about that when, just now when we come to uh, try to define right awareness. Uh, the breath goes on all the time. Do we need to stop noting it in order to note other things? And what if there are several things happening at one time, such as hearing, sensation, and so on? How do we choose what to note? Um, the breath is your anchor. It's what you return to when you're lost. It's what you begin with to develop a steadiness of attention. But then whatever draws your attention, that's your object. So if, if something, if there's a pain or, a, or, a dis, or some distraction in the hall or sound of a bird, and if that's what's drawing your attention, that's what you go to. Yeah? You're not choosing to observe anything. It's whatever the sense actually is drawing you to observe, feel, experience. And if there seems to be many objects, just go for the one that interests you. You know, if you have a lot of things and you think, well, my knee is of great interest. Investigate your knee. Interest is one of the factors of enlightenment, see, curiosity. <coughs> Uh, I often find I'm in some physical pain after a while, and I find this very distracting. Should I try to note the pain and continue, or is it advisable to change posture midway through the meditation? Uh, as above, is this something that gets better? I can offer no hope. Pain makes me feel, sometimes the pain makes me feel I need yoga or Pilates to help. Um, physical pain that you get from sitting, just getting used to the posture, you know, the sort of burning knees, pins in, somebody, a nail being stuck in your knee, things like that. That's just something that we have to go through if you want to remain, if you want to actually develop this posture. 
But pain itself is a great teacher because what we're trying to discover is what is our relationship to pain. And you can see from the question that the relationship they want is no relationship at all. We're going to get rid of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, this disguises our true relationship to pain. And the great pain, of course, is death. So our purpose in meditation is to find a way of being with pain or suffering in a totally equanimous way. So that's uh, this business of seeing how suffering arises and how it passes away. Not to confuse that with the given. So pain in the knee is just pain. Where's the suffering? So when pain comes, rejoice. This is an opportunity to investigate our wrong relationship with this body. Always wanting it to be other than it actually is. Oh, it causes a lot of suffering. And I'll come to that in this, uh, you know, when I give this talk. I think that's it, yeah. Very good. So, um, our purpose in the Pasana meditation is to establish what the Buddha called right awareness. Now, this right awareness is not the same as it's the same quality, it's the same faculty as, as any awareness. If you're playing a sport um, and you're actually with the sport that you're playing, tennis or something, then you're aware. That's not a problem. If you're writing a letter to somebody or sending an email, uh, you're aware. Yeah? If you uh, decide to rob the local bank, you'd be definitely aware, fully aware, brightly aware. See, So awareness is... Is there? In fact, you could almost you could you could say it's there all the time, in some sense, because something hears the bell, the alarm bell in the morning. So there's some residual awareness even in sleep. But when the Buddha talks about awareness, he he puts this little adjective to it: right awareness. And this right awareness is concerned with undermining a certain mistake we've made, a certain delusion that we're living under and that delusion in its uh, fundamental definition you might say is to believe we're human beings this is a big mistake now nobody denies that conventionally you know i mean if you say well that's a dog and i'm a human being that's pretty straightforward and most people have to put their names down if they're voting and you're presumed to be a human being when you join the order, one of the questions you're asked is, are you a human being? So <laughs> it's not as though, conventionally speaking, we're human beings, but are, is that what we truly are? So there's the investigation. It's encapsulated in the question, who am I? Which runs through most uh, spiritual traditions. Now, in order to do that, in order to investigate that, in order to try and find out whether or not the Buddha's true, whether we are indeed deluded or not, then he gives us three avenues of investigation. So the first one is to do with a sense of permanency. There's something in us that feels it's permanent. It's always there. Um, there's something in us which, even though we see that things are changing, we have the impression that, well, it is changing, but it's always the same thing that's changing. It's a bit like you have a piece of clay and you mold it into a saucer, then you sort of screw it up and then mold it into a cup. 
But that's not what the Buddha means when he says that everything is changing. Uh, he means that there is a radical disappearance for the next appearance to arise. So when one breath, as you take in one breath, the in-breath, when you come to the end of the in-breath, that's it. That in-breath will never arise again. And when the out-breath is finally uh, finished and you come to the end of the out-breath and you notice the end of the out-breath, that is the end of that out-breath. It will never arise again. Yeah? And so what the Buddha is pointing to is a much more radical impermanence than we would like to accept. So there's our investigation, see, impermanence. So when we're watching, when we're observing anything in the body, one thing we can become aware of is its transient nature. And the question behind that is, is there anything at all that's permanent? See? If it's transient, if it has the nature of disappearing, then I must be deluding myself in thinking that this sense of I doesn't disappear. See? But in fact, we're very happy with the I disappearing. We fall asleep. Yeah? So you notice how we say that? We fall asleep. We fall into the pit. Disappear. And then you wake up in the morning, and here I am. Just like that. So the sense of I isn't always with us. And we're quite happy to fall asleep, so long as we are absolutely sure that we're going to wake up. If the doctor said, if you fall asleep, you will, no, you will, you will undoubtedly die, you'd be there sticking pins in your eyes. Yeah? So the whole idea of letting go of self is easy. Self-awareness is easy, so long as we're absolutely sure it's going to re-arise. Even in that understanding, there's a sense of the impermanence of this sense of I. So our investigation in Vipassana is simply to observe, to experience that everything is arising and passing away. That's enough, see, just to experience it. So it's not as though we have to constantly be questioning ourselves in the vipassana when we're actually practicing. You don't have to say, is this arising? No, it's not. Is that arising? Did I see that right? You, you don't have to speak through the process. You just have to experience it. The experience is enough. It's a direct experience that everything we experience is arising and passing away. See? When we do that, we begin to realize slowly that nothing's worth holding on to. So that's the Buddha's statement. There is nothing in the world worth holding on to. See? If you keep repeating that to yourself, it sort of begins to affect us. There is nothing in the world worth holding on to. So that's one avenue of investigation. It pops up now and again. Now and again we're aware of it. Most times we're not. The second avenue is the business of suffering, psychological suffering. What most people would say, what most people mean when they say, you know, I'm unhappy, I'm suffering. And then we have to look at that psychology of desire, now, not all desires are bad. In fact, the desire to sit is a desire which leads to the end of suffering. But those desires which are seeking happiness in the wrong place end up with us being frustrated. 
So that's the purpose of that eating. Um, the exercise around eating is to make that very clear to ourselves. Hmm? How can we eat without the attachment, without that wrong desire of seeking happiness there? Yeah? And when it comes to suffering, so we had this question about pain. So pain, so long as we have a body, there's going to be pain. I mean, you can try and anesthetize the body every time it moves in a, in a sort of discomfort way. But that would be to be constantly having to carry around your Panadol and your, and your, and your, and your, your injections. But pain is, an, is, is something which arises naturally in the body. And it's for us to investigate what our relationship is. So our relationship is always one of not wanting it. So there's an aversion to it. And if it gets too much, you get the, uh, you get the fear, you get the anxiety. So where's the suffering? See, there's pain, a, dis, uh, a, a sensation, a feeling which is uncomfortable, which is not pleasant. But is that suffering? Or is it my relationship to that which is suffering? So there's your investigation. And how can I let go of that? Can I just observe that process of aversion, of fear, just let it arise and pass away? When it arises and passes away, when I'm just with discomfort, with pain, in a very equanimous way, am I suffering? So that's your investigation. And then finally, there's the... uh, teaching around not-self. So this is confusing uh, to most of us because we think that the Buddha is making some sort of metaphysical statement, there is no self. But he never goes that far. Or it's a, it's a sort of skillful means to make us ask the question, is this me? Is this mine? See? So now, in your meditation, you find a place within yourself, an observation post, where everything that... you're experiencing, is an object to that knowing, to that feeling. So if you get pain in the knee, you see, you say pain, pain, what you're saying is pain is there, it's in the knee, it's down there, and there's something up here which knows it. That separation, that separation where you have a subject which knows and feels an experience and an object which is felt, experienced and known... Hmm? the gap between that is the gap of not me, not mine. Now, all of you, uh, when you're looking at me, uh, my face, my body, fills your consciousness. I apologize. But what if you look at me now, and instead of being aware of me as your object, but become aware of the distance between us, the separation between us, see, That separation is telling us that I'm not you and you're not me. Now, all we're doing is taking that inwardly. So that that ability to observe something, to feel something as an object, is telling us that that object is not me and it's not mine. So it's to do also with a sense of control. There are certain things about the body that we can control. I mean, you can wave your arms about, things like that. But the real important stuff, the real important stuff, not wanting the body to fall sick, not wanting it to grow old, and not wanting it to drop dead, we don't seem to have much control over at all. 
So it's a case of recognizing that the sense of control is very superficial. It's like when you, for instance, drive a car, for those of you who can. When you're in the car driving the car, you feel totally in control. And then suddenly it stops. Or the wheel drops off. And then you realize, I'm not in control of this car. (laughs) That was a very superficial control. But we attach to that control and we give ourselves the lie that this body is mine, this is me, and I can do this with it. So during the day, while you're sitting, you might become aware of that distance, of that no control, that everything's arising and passing away outside your control. So that's understanding this body, this mind, this heart, these thoughts, these emotions, these feelings... Not me, not mine. And it's through that process of negation, through the process of saying, this is not me, this is not me, this is not mine, that you're slowly, we're slowly beginning to discover what it is we truly are. And what it is we truly are is not some negative blackout or something. So that's our process of investigation. And that's what right awareness is, okay? Which is not the same as ordinary daily life awareness. It's a process of this investigation. But remember that this process of investigation is not one of constantly questioning, constantly questioning. It's just simply putting ourselves into the posture of the observer, the objective observer, the objective feeler, the objective experiencer. And that position is itself a very highly potential experience to see this process of impermanence, to see these conditioned reactions of aversion and fear and greed, and to see that everything I'm experiencing is not me, not mine. So every time you access that observation post within yourself and begin to see, feel and experience these things, you're already at a point of enlightened position. You're already awakening to the fact that everything you're experiencing is not me, not mine. See? Every so often as you're practicing, uh, there may be some reflection come up. So this is the way that we tell ourselves what we've just seen. So it might just come to you that there might be just a little sentence that says, Everything's arising and passing away. See? So at that point, just before that point, there's been some sort of seeing about the true nature of things. But you're not purposefully thinking, okay? You're not purposefully thinking. And as soon as something like that little reflection comes up, then you, ac- you acknowledge it and you let it go, right? You don't start writing a book. This is a big mistake. So that's your practice uh, when you're sitting. And and that distinguishes right awareness, this awareness which leads to liberation, from just ordinary daily awareness. Now remember that through the practice, this intelligence, this panya, this sati panya, this intuitive awareness, hmm, which has been primed through our practice to see these three characteristics, It's always there with us now, right? You've been initiated. There's no way you can go back on what you know. 
So often in daily life, just doing something very simple, there is an insight. These insights are not some, it's very rare anyway for it to be such an explosive thing that you completely turn your life upside down. They're just like little insights that are sort of wearing away the sense of this wrong sense of who we are. It's like um, uh, Gulliver and Lilliput tied down with all these little strings, see? And every insight, you're just snipping a little string, see? And very slowly but surely, you get that sense of being liberated from unnecessary suffering, which is caused by this wrong view of who I am. So the practice is always about attaining that position of the observer, the objective observer, within ourselves. Full stop. You don't have to go any further than that. So every time your mind wanders, see, really recognize what it's doing, start again. Every time you get caught up in some sort of emotional state, right, pull yourself as you come out of it, accept what's happened, acknowledge what's happened, and then go back to that position of the observer, the feeler, the experiencer. That's one of the um, uh, qualities of that intuitive awareness, that it not only knows, not only knows, it feels. Right? It's a total experience. And we have to keep working at it all day, just gently bringing ourselves back into the present moment. Right? If you find yourself getting fed up, see, just note, fed up. See? If you find yourself getting lazy, note, lazy, lazy, and keep working at it. Right? And it's a gentle pressure, right? a gentle pushing of ourselves that's necessary. Okay? If it's too gentle, you fall asleep. If it's too pushy, you get all tight. It's got to be a gentle push throughout the day to just keep bringing ourselves back into this present moment. It's very simple, eh? So remember this little phrase is from uh, Ajahn Tate, you see. Take it easy. Every time you're not taking it easy, ask yourself, why am I not taking it easy? What are you trying to get? What, what, what am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to grasp? See? Take a deep breath. Relax. Take it easy. Make it simple. See? One thing at a time. Just keep your attention exactly on what's happening now. See? Don't go beyond this presence. Don't try and intellectualize it. Don't think about it. See? Just put your attention on exactly what it is you're experiencing. And stay with the one who knows. So every time you lose the one who knows, keep coming back and saying, where am I? See? In the Zen tradition, there was a monk who used to establish his moment-to-moment awareness by calling his name. Bodhidharma, present. Here I am. So every time you lose your... Every time you lose your place, call your name out. Hoi. So throughout the day, especially those of you who are just here for the weekend, make the uh, 
make that your special practice of just relaxing into the present moment, wide awake. See? Relaxing. And uh, keep the schedule. Make the schedule your discipline. Right? That's not a, a word we particularly like. But by being with the schedule, on time, before time for the sitting, that gives you your rhythm. Okay? And especially those who are staying a week, once you get into it, it builds up its own energy. It's like any practice. So I think that uh, eleven o'clock walking. Yeah, I think that uh, sort of does for the time being as a as a reminder as to what we're doing. But remember, you know, just uh, you can bring it up as a thought before you sit. If you get lost during the sitting, you can just have a small reflection. But just keep making that effort to just be with what's happening. Okay. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. And may you labor in this work for your own liberation and discover the true aim of your life sooner rather than later. So if you want to take uh, walking meditation, ah, yes. So now walking meditation... Um, we tend to skive off that, yeah? You know, a cup of tea. By the time you get out there, the bell goes. I'll sort of wander in, do a bit more. But walking meditation is your balance to your sitting, you see? And it's in the walking meditation that you'll actually feel this growth of real one-pointedness of attention, very powerful. It's a very gross thing to do, lifting your foot up and down. It's a very neutral thing, so it immediately calms the heart, you see, brings you to a stillness. And if you really put effort into it, so now the next sitting isn't till quarter to. That's 45 minutes, you see. If you can resist that cup of tea and go to your walking place and really put in a good 40 minutes of walking meditation, and when you hear the bell Come in at a speed where you don't lose that centeredness. You'll see it affects. It'll have a, an effect on your on your sitting. Yeah. So I urge you to take these walking periods seriously. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.